Welcome once again to the story. If you're a first-time guest today, we have been going through the Bible, the major narratives of the Bible anyway. It's kind of a 31-week series. We're on week 21 today. We're looking at the story of Nehemiah, one of the last books of the Old Testament. The Old Testament's winding down. You know we're going to be in the New Testament next Sunday. We're going to get to the birth of a king, and that king's name was Jesus, and he came into the world in a very unique way. The king came in the form of a baby. But today, the story of rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah answers the question, what kind of business is God in? God's not only in the business of building, he's in the business of rebuilding, amen? He's not only interested in saving souls, he's interested in growing sons and growing daughters. Can a has-been be again? Can a once strong Christian that had a vibrant Christian walk with God, maybe even a vibrant Christian ministry, whose lamp has gone out, whose candle has gone cold, can it be revived? Nehemiah says, yes. And that's really the story of Jerusalem. Jerusalem once had a wall. What do walls do? Walls protect. It protected the city. It protected the people. It protected the temple. It protected their homes. But no wall anymore. Even today, we need walls. America has walls. They're not the typical walls that you might think of. But if you look way, 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 way up there into outer space, you'll see something called satellites that are looking, these all-seeing eyes in the sky. They're sort of our walls. They're sort of our protection. We've got recon flights, and, and we've got something called radar, and we've got aircraft carriers around our nation protecting us. Those are our walls. Even you in your homes, many of you have walls around your homes. You have alarms. You have locks on your doors. When you left this morning, you turned that little knob, didn't you? We have our walls. And Jerusalem once had a wall. 2 Kings 25, verse 10, look at this verse. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Now, we read about that a number of weeks ago. Babylon in the year, let's get kind of a timetable here. Let's go to the next slide. Babylon in the year 606, Judah is taken. And the Babylonian king comes in and knocks down breaches in the walls. He didn't knock down the whole wall. You don't need to knock down everything to get the troops in there, do you? But they knocked down a pretty good portion. And you know what they did to the gates? They burned the gates. Big beams, big enormous gates burned down. Well, then we know that 70 years of captivity go by, and Cyrus signs a decree saying the Jews can go back home. They can go back to Jerusalem. They can go back and they can rebuild their temple, rebuild their homes, and rebuild their wall. Well, the first group came back, and they started building their houses, but they didn't build the temple. And so, you know, they had to get on them. The prophets had to get on them. And then Ezra leads another group. They finally get the temple rebuilt. But they don't rebuild the wall. And it lies dormant. And a city without a wall is not a fortified city. And so it really, the temple was exposed. The people were still exposed. There's still enemies all around. That wall needs to go up. But nobody's taking the time or the trouble to take the leadership and get the wall built. And so in 445 B.C., Nehemiah 
gets a word from the Lord. I believe this is all inspired, kind of like the book of Esther. You know, you've got to read a lot of things in there. You don't see God's name mentioned one time in the book of Esther, do you? But you see God's hand on every page. Well, sort of that's going on here in the book of Nehemiah in many ways. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall and more return. Now, Nehemiah is living in Shushan, the palace. Who else lived in Shushan, the palace? Queen Esther, right? Under who? Xerxes. Xerxes had a, has a son named Artaxerxes, one longiminous. Longiminous means long-handed. Uh, depending on who you read, some say his hands were so big when they put him by his side, they touched his knees. Some say one hand was bigger than the other. Eh, draw your own conclusion. Do your own research on that. Who knows for sure? But that was his name. Nehemiah's cupbearer to this king. Cupbearer was a very important position. Nobody was closer to the king than the cupbearer. They were very, very close. And Nehemiah was a Jew. Nehemiah gets word from one of his brothers about how the people are in reproach, how the gates have been burned and the, the walls in disrepair, and the enemies round about are always giving them a bad time. Chapter 1, verse 1. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and questioned them about the Jewish remnant. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile. And also about Jerusalem. So he's interested. How are things going back home? They said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. You know, some news just makes you cry, doesn't it? There's some news worth crying over. When your people are hurting, you're hurting. For some days, I mourned. And he didn't just mourn. For some days, I fasted. And for some days, I prayed. When you mourn, you fast, and you pray, God's in that. And God hears that prayer. He prayed before who? The God of heaven. And so, Nehemiah's agonizing. If you want to sum up point one, he agonized. He's agonizing over the hurting of his people. Now, normally, when Nehemiah went about his work, he went about joyfully. He went about his task with a happy face, a happy countenance, but now his countenance is sad. Chapter 2, verse 2, and so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart, and I was much afraid. You know, these kings were so nervous about assassination, and attempted assassination was very common in those days, that when you went to work every day with a smiling face, and now all of a sudden it's not smiling, what are you up to here, Jack? And so he's a little bit worried. He says, I was afraid. When you went before the king, you went on with your best clothes. You went on with a smile on your face. These kings, they don't want to hear about the bad news going on in society. They don't want to hear about the poverty, and they don't want to hear about the ghettos, and they don't want to hear about the, the crime in the streets and the social injustice going on. Just tell me about the good stuff. And now Nehemiah comes in, but he can't be happy. He, he can only be sad, and the king picks up on this. And he says, why are you so sad of heart? And I was afraid, but I said to the king, see, he's been praying, he's been fasting, he's been mourning, and that gives you what? Strength to say what's on your heart. 
And when you need to speak up for such a time as this, Esther did, so did Nehemiah. So he spoke up. Here's what he said. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? When the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire, the king said to me, what is it you want? Ooh, isn't that what he was looking for? Isn't that a good answer? You know, he said, what do you need? What do you want? And he tells him, and he says, hey, what do you want? I'm here for you, man. You're my cupbearer. I love you. I trust you. And he says, what do you want? Then I pray to the God of heaven. Now, that seems like an unusual statement to read next in your Bible. And you'd almost get the idea from just a quick reading that the king says, what do you want? He says, just a minute, king. I just got to get on my hands and knees and say, dear heavenly father, give me wisdom, give me understanding, give me guidance to ask this. He doesn't do that. Then I prayed. What kind of prayer is he praying? Have you ever been on the spot where you need to, boom, instantly need some help from God? What did you do? Did you get on your knees and do that? No, there's not time for that. This is what I call a flare prayer. It just, boom, it's in your mind. You're not talking out loud. You're just saying, okay, God, ready or not, here I go. Give, give me some strength. Give me some help. Boom, there it goes. That's the kind of prayer he's praying. We've all done it. Can God hear your thoughts? Of course he can. And Nehemiah just throws out there, all right, God, if ever there was a time for me to go for it, I'm going for it. Give me the words. Give me the strength. Give me the power. You know what he does? He says, he lays out the whole case. He asks for the king's permission to leave the important job of cupbearer. That's going to leave a void in the king's life right out out of the gate. One of his most trusted officials is leaving. He's gone for like 12 years. He's the governor of the land. I want to go back and I want to supervise the building of the wall. And king, by the way, I'm going to need some money to do that. And I'm going to need letters to the keeper of the king's forest because gates require big beams and big beams require require big trees. And I'm going to need letters to the officials to the keeper of the king's forest. I'm going to need safe passage, so I'm going to need some troops. I'm going to need some horses. I'm going to need some military men to go with me to get me there safely. And, uh, you know, it'd just really be nice if I could have the money to do the job, and you, you, you fund it. And you know what the king said? Okay. Okay. Whoa, what a God we have, huh? What a God we serve. But don't just think this all happened. He, he, he agonized. He wept. He mourned. And he prayed before any of this happened. Do you see God at work here in Nehemiah's life? Boy, I sure do. And, and so the king says, you can go. Here's a map of the route that he took, most likely. He's over here in Susa. We also know that as Shushan, the palace where Xerxes lived and under Esther's time. And heads on up toward Babylon, the Euphrates. They cross the Tigris, Euphrates, and then on down through Damascus. Finally ends up Jerusalem. Now, when he got to Jerusalem, he didn't immediately tell everybody what he's doing there. Now, he's coming in with an entourage, right? He's got all the king's horses and all the king's men and all this stuff. But he doesn't announce why he's there. Now, the enemies are watching him coming in as well. Not everyone liked the Jews. As a matter of fact, most roundabout didn't. And they were just just real happy that the Jews didn't have a wall in a fortified city. So they're watching this, and he comes in, and he, and he um, doesn't know who he can trust, so he doesn't announce his reasoning. But if you read your story this past week, he did a night tour. 
kind of the midnight ride, remember? I don't know if he rode a donkey or a horse, I forget. I know it wasn't a tractor. But as he goes through the midnight ride around the, 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 the city, I think he finds that the walls are really in much worse shape than they thought they would be. But he does the investigation and the research that's absolutely necessary before any good work begins. That's the kind of guy Nehemiah is. And so he not only agonized, but he analyzed the situation. He was a good supervisor. And then he begins to organize. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, look at this. You see the trouble we're in. He calls a town hall meeting. All right, everybody show up. Everyone wants to know, what's this guy doing here? You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and the gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us, he includes himself, rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. The people replied, now watch this, not not a word here that's not important. The people replied, not Nehemiah, the people replied, let us, 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 rise up and what? Build. So they began the good work. What kind of work was it? A good work. A work of the Lord. Whenever you're working, you're working a good work for the Lord. Not a bad work. It's a good work. And God's in it. And God's in it. He didn't didn't need the king's permission. He already had it. He didn't need God's permission. I believe God put it on Nehemiah's heart. They had simply let their enemies threaten them and intimidate them to the point that their faith had not been equal to the task. And they'd let that wall lie in ruins for 140 years until Nehemiah shows up on the scene. And so now Nehemiah's their leader. He's just explained to everybody what's going to take place, and so everything's going to go swimmingly, right? They're not going to have any problems. They're not going to have any worries, and everyone's just going to build the wall, and everything's going to go smooth, correct? Wrong. Not. That's not the way it works. That's a, is, that, is that the way it works in the church today? You know, the leaders get up and they, they challenge the church to do something great for the Lord and then everything just goes great? Never! You know, back in the 80s, early 80s, when we decided to build our Family Life Center over there, you know, we, we did the research, we took how much it was going to cost, we got together with architects, we got together with contractors, we figured out what it was going to take, we did the, the, the agonizing over how God has been calling us to do something great and woodier, we analyzed the cost, we organized, and then we gathered everyone together, and not everyone said, let us rise up and build. Some people said, you build it, we're going to leave, and then we built it, and then they came back. There's going to be some people like that, folks, that honestly, this happened. And, uh, and, and then we had, we had enemies from without and enemies from within. See, Satan never stops working when God's people start working for God. He does his best work then. We had trouble with the city. We had trouble with permits. We had, we had delays with contractors. We had delay, delays with, uh, we had an on-site major crash, if you will. One of the major truss beams that go across the, the, uh, Family Life Center over there, the largest beam fell 30 feet to the ground, bent in half. 
and they made them not this side of the Mississippi River, but the other side of the Mississippi River. It had to come from the other side of the country. It took us three months to get that beam. And don't you know that Satan laughed and rejoiced? And here we are wanting to work. We want to do a good thing. Well, God, why isn't everything going smooth? Because there's a Satan. And there's enemies from without that don't want us to do a good work for God. Well, what was true then is true today. And so we just need to understand that whenever we start to do something great for God, the enemy is going to show up. And we just need to be aware of that. So I'm telling you right up front, when your elders get up with another great challenge, which we will do, don't think it's all going to go smooth and without problems. Enemies from without. Chapter 2, verse 10. Here comes the terrible three. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant. Ooh, creepy little dude. He, this is a little guy that runs around Sanballat all the time. And there's just something about the names. And this was a guy done in 19, verse 19, named Geshem the Arabian. And these guys, all of their names sound exactly like what they were. They were a bunch of thugs. They really were. They didn't love God. They didn't love God's people. And they did everything they could to thwart the, thwart the will of the Lord. And they were always getting in the way. Tobiah, ooh, this is a little creepy guy. The servant he's called. Do you ever read Dickens? There's a, one of his characters named Uriah Heep. Does that name ring a bell to any of you? He reminds me of Tobiah, the servant. Uriah Heep used to say, I'm too humble to be called your friend. Just call me your servant. And it's all false humility, you know. Yeah, there's not anything, you know, honest about it. He's just weaseling his way in. That's Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite. And then Geshem the Arabian, the terrible tree, heard of it. It grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Now listen to me, folks. This is what the world thinks of us. The world does not love us. The world does not care about us. The world does not want us to succeed. They didn't want Israel to succeed, and the world will not want us to succeed. Now the world will sell us anything we want to buy. The world... And I'm talking about the world in its ugliest form, right? They'll sell us houses and cars and and wristwatches and cameras and belts and anything you want to buy. But at the end of the day, the world was built upon a system that ultimately crucified our master. And Jesus said, well, if the world hated me, don't be surprised if it hates who? You! As a matter of fact, he says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. That's what the world does. Everything we're for, the world's against. Everything the world's for, we're against. Can I say Supreme Court justice ruling last week? That's just one example of how we're in a warfare. We're in a conflict, good and evil. The Bible says, woe unto a nation. When a nation starts calling something that's bad, good. And when they start calling something that's good, bad. That's a downhill slide for a nation. Well, they hated him, they're going to hate us. And then what's it say they did? They they mocked 
and they ridiculed. Snickering, making fun of. You know, one of the things that bombs our kids out when they go away to college is the snickers and the sneers and the laughter and the put-downs many times by the college professor, unbelieving college professor, him or herself. And if a young college Christian student stands up to take a stand for Christ and maybe says, well, you know, I believe in, you know, um, that, that there's a God. I mean, design demands a designer. Look at this world. It's beautifully designed. A creation demands a creator. And rather than answer the argument, oftentimes what you'll get is, ah, <laughs> you believe in that garbage? And gets everyone laughing at you. And what's that do to our kids? Their faith. It just destroys them. They, they, the face gets red. You know, I think I'd rather take someone just bust me right in the jaw rather than make fun of me. I just can't stand that stuff. But if you're strong enough, you know, you can stand up. Most of our kids aren't strong enough. They haven't been equipped. That's why you guys need to get into the truth. Uh, what's the, the, the deal? The truth project, man. If you need some apologetics, you need to get your faith built up. You need to be a part of that class. And some of our kids will say, well, yeah, if you want to laugh at me and joke, yeah, that's fine. But that really doesn't answer the argument. But most of our kids won't do that. No, Tobiah. Tobiah the servant, the little runt, little toad. In chapter 4 and about verse 3, I think you'll read, he mocks. One day the, 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 the guys are up there building the wall. They're hot. They're sweaty. They're under pressure from the loan sharks. They're under pressure from Nehemiah to keep on working. And they haven't showered. They haven't shaved. They've got families that they miss, and they're working hard, and they're laying brick after brick, and stinking little toad Tobiah comes up, and he says, ah, look at that crummy wall. Even if a fox crawled on that wall, it'd fall down. Ooh, you just want to go down there and just go, bam! But you can't do that. You just got to keep on working. You just got to keep on keeping on. The Lord said, be thou faithful unto death. I'll give you a crown of life. You occupy till I come. That just means you stay busy with kingdom business. Don't stop the Lord's work. You just keep doing your work. People aren't the enemy. Satan's the enemy. We need to love sinners. Hate the sin. But remember, the real enemy is the devil. He's the God of this world. There's not only, not only going to be enemies from without. There's going to be enemies from within. Right within the church. Right within your own church. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5. See it there? The next section was repaired. So Nehemiah is a supervisor. Oh, let me say this about Nehemiah. He agonized, he analyzed, he organized, and then he supervised. The people said, let us rise up and build for the people had a mind to work. And then Nehemiah supervised all the building. And he had people you know, build in the sections of the area in which they lived. Why? Because you're going to build a strong fortress if your house is there, right? You want to protect your wife, you want to protect your kids, you want to protect your family. And um, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Can you imagine having Nehemiah as your leader, God as your God, the king's permission, the king's blessing, the king's money, and still there were people who did not want to work. And that's true in the church today. You'll call a work party, you know, Lance over there limping around this morning. Did you see Lance is on crutches today? I said, what happened to you, dude? He says, man, I was building this wall, and a big brick hit me in the foot and it broke my toes. No, not really. Something big did drop on him at work. 
And uh, he said, the only thing that saved me is I had steel-toed those work boots on. And he said, the steel-toed boots were all crushed, but it saved his toes. He's in bad shape. Whoever got closing prayer, pray for that dude over there. I said, how long are you going to be off work? He says, I'll be there tomorrow. Ooh, I want that guy on my team. That's just the kind of guy Lance is, right? And so he... He would have been a great worker for Nehemiah, but there were some nobles that said, hey, I ain't showing up to work. They, they wouldn't put them back to the work. Chapter 4, verse 10, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers has given out, and there's so much rubble, they cannot rebuild the wall. You know, when things are a mess, there was tons and tons of rubble they had to remove before they could even start the repair, right? What's the hardest part about painting a house? You know, cleaning the walls, masking. Uh, yeah, the paint part's the fun part. It's all that other stuff you've got to do ahead of time. It's just no fun. You've got to remove all those bricks and all that. You don't want people turning ankles and, you know, tearing up their flip-flops. You've got to get all tons of rubble out of there. And, you know, that can be discouraging work because you don't see a whole lot of progress when you see a big mess, right? If you were at our house on Mohall Lane in 1979, one week... Thank goodness this only happened one time. Jane and I were in our early 20s. And usually after we eat dinner, someone does the dishes. Lots of times, you know, she might wash, I might dry, or vice versa. We didn't have a dishwasher back then. We ate dinner and put the things in. Ah, we were tired, didn't feel like doing it. Next morning we think we'll do it. Nah, we eat breakfast, put it in the sink. Yeah. Next day goes by, next day. Before, we, we went about a week. I'm waiting for her to do something. She's waiting for me to do something. The rest of the house was clean, but when we went to that kitchen, it was just depressing. I mean, there's dishes everywhere, and yeah, it was a mess. And finally, we happened to be in the, in the kitchen at the same time. There wasn't a clean glass, a clean plate in the cupboard. And it's like, blah. And we just looked at this mess, and we just laughed, and we said, let's get after it. And we cleaned that whole kitchen up in about an hour. We just really dove in and got it done. And, oh, I felt so clean. Oh, I felt so fresh. It's like just being reborn, getting baptized all over again. Uh, lovely. But for a whole week, it was depressing, let me tell you. Well, these guys are depressed. The rubble's everywhere. And they can't even begin to build without clearing the rubble. And so you're going to have complainers in the church. You're going to have whiners in the church. People that don't want to work. People that think they're above the work. And then you're going to have a group of people that if they can't get you to stop working, they're going to try to get you to compromise. And that's what finally these three nignogs tried to do in chapter 6, verse 1. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall. See, while they're, while they're uh, mocking, Nehemiah kept on what? Working. And the walls are up. But not the gates. The gates aren't done yet. You know, your, your walls are only as strong as your gates. But man, he's making some progress, right? I had built the walls, though, up to that time, I had not set the doors and the gates. Sanballat, Geshem, sent this message to me. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And you know what Nehemiah said to go into the plain of Ono, right? He said, oh no. Oh no. Can't go to Ono, because they were scheming to what? Harm him. And he knew all about that stuff. And he said, ah, forget that junk. I got, a, I got a good work for the Lord going on here. I can't stop the good work to go talk to you about stopping the good work. 
I'm looking at a group of people here this morning. I see ministry leaders out here. I see elders out here. There's some deacons there in the back. We've got people working in the balcony. Listen, folks, you're going to have pressure. I'm talking to my worker bees right now, the people that are on board for God. You're going to have pressure for people to get you to stop doing the work. And you may even have people saying, well, why don't you stop that good work and come over here and do this good work with me? No, if God's called you to do that work, you stay faithful to what God's called you to do. And if you're not yet involved in the work, you need to get on board. And don't stop just because people want you to. I'm carrying on a great project. I can't go down. Why should I stop working while I have and go down and talk to you? Now, the good news is, in chapter 6, verse 15, it says this. So the wall was what? What's the next word? Completed. Exactly. How long did it take, folks? 52 days. What had been in rubble for 140 years gets completed in 52 days, for the people had a mind to work. When all our enemies heard about this... All the surrounding nations were afraid and lost confidence. Isn't that great? Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of who? God Almighty. Jehovah God. The one who defends us. And so they celebrated. They had a big party in chapter 8, verse 1. All the people assembled in the square before the water gate. No jokes, please. I've heard them all. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses. And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women, all could understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon, all the people listened attentively. They celebrated by reading the book of the law, the law of Moses, the Bible. And you know, as they were reading, they realized that they were not doing some things correctly. Remember that thing called the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths? They hadn't been doing that. So they said, man, we've got to get after this. And so they had a big old celebration, got back on board with God. Nehemiah 12, verse 43a. And on the next day they offered great sacrifices, that is the dedication of the wall, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. Our assemblies, I think, should be a time of rejoicing. I think we need to do a whole lot more smiling and laughing and singing out loud with a smile on our face. We can be happy alone and We can sing alone, but there's something therapeutic about being together and rejoicing to our God together. We never sing as loudly as we do as when we get together with other people who can sing and drown out our own voices, right? And the Bible never says you've got to sing well. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And that's what I try to do every week. It's great to have a, a great group of Christian worshipers up here helping us do that and connect with God. And so a joyful spirit will have far-reaching effects. Verse 43, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard. How, How far away? Far away. Afar, the King James Version says. What reached far away? The song? No. The rejoicing. They couldn't understand the song. They just could hear the shouting and the praising and the rejoicing. Every now and again. I live from, from my doorstep in Paramount, where I grew up, to the football stadium at Paramount High School. is exactly about one mile. And every Friday night when I was growing up, lived in this house my whole life, 
every Friday night during football season, every now and again, from my house, I would hear this huge uproar. And you know what I would know? That Paramount varsity football team had just scored another touchdown or made a great play. Because you could hear what? The rejoicing. Well, that's what's going on in Jerusalem. And guess all these enemies out here outside the walls, they hear this uproar, praising God, rejoicing. And that's the church. We should be praising our God as we accomplish great things for God. We need to be out there in the communities. Don't come to the next Praise Night barbecue alone. That's a challenge to you. Bring somebody. Tell Letty over here, you know what? I want to buy two more tickets. You know, here's an extra 10 bucks. I'm bringing my neighbors. I'm bringing... You know, I've been talking to this lady at the checkout counter for the last 20 years of my life. I know her on a first-name basis. Next time I buy groceries there, I'm going to say, hey, our church is having a barbecue. You're going to be my guest. It's my challenge to you this morning, all right? Now, you might think the main character in the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah. Not so. The main character is G-O-D, God. It's God at work here. God keeping his promise. God bringing his people home in an amazing way. And even Nehemiah recognizes that in chapter 2, verse 8. He's already said, And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. He saw that. The nations round about him saw that. Now, I, I say this because right after chapter 12, where they had this great big celebration, and the dedication of the wall. You know what follows chapter 12 and the dedication? Chapter 13 and sin in the camp again. So here we go again, one more time, folks. They start messing up again. They stop keeping the Sabbath. You know, Nehemiah has to close those gates on the Sabbath day. We're not going to do commerce. We're not going to have people coming in and going out. We're going to take a day of rest and we're going to remember our God. They, they didn't keep that. They started intermarrying people of other religions again. And you go, oh, ay, 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 ay. Why is this happening, God? The cycle continues of God people coming to him and God's people turning away from him. Here's the point. I said all that to say this. It's only through trusting in Jesus Christ alone that we become righteous with God. Are you beginning to see, it, see this? Are you getting this? We are never going to be righteous. They were never righteous. Try as they might, they were not righteous. And as we come to the end of Nehemiah, we're coming to the end of the Old Testament. It's, it's only two years removed from the book of Malachi. And then we hit those 400 silent years until we get into the New Testament. Next week, we get into the New Testament, the, the little book, if you will. And we see the birth of a king. And here's what we'll find. In the Old Testament, God's people sin, and they break their promises. In the Old Testament, we see they fail to live up to their commitments. But we're going to see in the New Testament that it's punished by Christ. See, the story that we've been reading so far, the whole Old Testament, here's the pattern we have been seeing. God's people sin, God's people are punished. God's people sin, God's people are punished. God's people sin, God's people are punished. New Testament, God's people sin, God punishes His Son. You see where we're going? You see all this? And the book of Nehemiah ends with God's people trying their best to be good and still sinning. And the New Testament picks up with 
God's people trying their best to be good and still sinning. And in 2015, we have the church and God's people trying to be good. Let me see your hand if you're trying to be good. And still sinning. Both hands go up, right? Do you see why we need a Savior? Aren't you glad we're getting to the New Testament next week? How about that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for not reminding us of how bad we really are, but how bad we really need a Savior. And it took the whole Old Testament to get us to this point. We're crying out for a Savior at this time, Lord. Now listen, if you're here today and you need a Savior this morning, would you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Would you repent of your sins today? Would you confess Him as Lord? And would you put Him on a baptism? No reason to delay. Would you do that right now? As together we stand and sing. Amen.